Welcome to episode seven of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. My name is Arup Sen and I'm joined by Simon Lovegrove. Hello, Simon. Hi, Arup. On this month's podcast, we begin by speaking to Celia Cohen from our New York office, who will be discussing regulatory enforcement trends in the US. Uh, we then hear from Anna Carrier from our Brussels office, who will be telling us about the new European commodities regime. And finally, Matthew Gregory and Joe Bamford from our London office will be discussing MIFID costs and charges with our special guest, Jeffrey Mushins, Technical Policy Director at the trade body, TISA. But before we kick off, over to Simon for the big RT stories this month. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here again. In terms of recent developments, there's been a number of important things, including the FCA's consultation on long-term asset funds, that was CP2112. There's also been the HM Treasury statement on the open access regime for exchange-traded derivatives. There's also been a couple of interesting speeches from both the PRA and the FCA this month. In particular, there was one from the PRA called Operational Resilience, Outcomes in Practice, where amongst other things, the PRA's timeline for implementing its policy on operational resilience was discussed. Horizon scanning has always been an important component of the Regulation Tomorrow blog. Our readers would have seen that I posted at the beginning of the month a new blog called What's Coming Up in May, which highlights some of the key European and UK consultations that closed this month. I also set out some of the key pieces of EU and UK regulatory legislation that go live in May. Going forward, I plan to do similar blogs at the beginning of each month. Also, RT blog readers would have seen our blog posting that the Financial Services Regulatory Initiatives Forum have published the third edition of the Regulatory Initiatives Grid. The grid is a useful document as it sets out at a high level future initiatives from the forum so that the financial services industry can plan for initiatives that may have a significant operational impact on them. The forum comprises of a wide range of UK regulatory authorities that include the Bank of England, the FCA, the PRA, amongst others. Unsurprisingly, the grid notes various ESG-related initiatives, including an FCA consultation paper is expected in June covering climate-related disclosure. Other items on the grid that caught my eye included a Bank of England publication on bail-in execution is expected in Q2 this year. Also, the FCA plans a consultation paper on the scope of the UK MIFIR derivatives trading obligation. This is expected in late Q2, early Q3 this year. And finally, the grid mentioned that the HM Treasury Wholesale Market Review is expected this summer with follow-up FCA consultations planned for Q3, Q4 this year. So all in all, it's going to be a very busy year. So back to you, Arup. Yeah, very, very busy indeed. And and again, uh, as you say, very, very unsurprising to see that ESG (laughs) is is, is still on the agenda as well. Uh, Thanks so much for that, Simon. Uh, Now over uh, to our first section, which will be Simon talking to Celia Cohen in New York. In the first part of this month's podcast, I'm joined by Celia Cohen, a partner in our New York office who has significant experience in dealing with white collar defense, regulatory defense, and investigations. Hi, Celia. Hi, Simon. 
Celia, to start off with, um, before joining Norton Rose Fulbright, you spent five years at a leading investment bank, heading up their internal in investigations in the US. From that experience, can you talk about some of the trends that companies should look out for this year? Sure. Uh, yes. Yeah, so based on my experience in that position, um, I obviously had a lot of experience um, with whistleblowers and whistleblower complaints. So I thought it'd be interesting uh, to talk about that because I think it's it's been well reported um, about whistleblower cases and that in the past year, there's been certainly an uh, increase in them with respect to the SEC. Um, the SEC whistleblower incentive awards increased last year. Um, I think that they are likely to increase this year. And um, in addition to the SEC, you have the new AML Anti-Money Laundering Act, um, which uh, also increased the financial incentives for whistleblowers who report money laundering and violations of the Bank Secrecy Act um, through FinCEN. So given that, um, in, in conjunction with the SEC, and of course you have uh, the CFTC had also increased its reliance on whistleblowers. Um, and recently, the Financial Conduct Authority on uh, the FCA launched a campaign to encourage individuals who become aware of potential misconduct to report it to the agency, um, which highlights that it's also increased its resources and expertise in handling these types of complaints. So when you put all that together, I think we're going to see an increase in whistleblower um, cases. That's really interesting. And just keeping with uh, the theme of whistleblowing, are there any specific trends to watch out for in whistleblowing cases? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think if you step back in general, whistleblower cases tend to follow the trends in what these different agencies are focused on. Um, and obviously, which goes hand in hand and what companies are worried about. Um, for example, for years, and I think this will continue, um, accounting issues, um, potential violations of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act under Dodd-Frank um, have been a significant focus of whistleblower complaints and concerns by companies, obviously because uh, the SEC is focused on that. Um, in addition, AML, anti-money laundering whistleblower cases have historically been raised, um, but I think that now, given what I was saying about the AML Act, I think those will continue to increase. But what I think we're really going to start to see that's different than these other um, complaints from the past um, are whistleblower cases related to ESG issues. Uh, and this, you know, as we know, ESG has, has been a topic of, of discussion for the past couple of years. Um, but the SEC's recent focus on ESG, I think, will bring this to light in whistleblower cases. That, that's really, really, really interesting. Do you just want to flesh out a little bit more why we're going to see um, ESG and whistleblowing cases? Yeah, so I think, you know, if you look at the past couple of months um, and what the SEC has um, said about ESG, specifically in March, it created an enforcement task force, which is focused on climate and ESG issues. Um, now, that task force is initial focus will be to identify material gaps or misstatements in the issuer's disclosure of, of climate risks under existing rules. Um, 
but I think in addition, the task force is going to try to bolster the efforts of the commission as a whole in addressing ESG and climate risks. And one of the things they've done that specifically brings this into the whistleblower issue is they, um, they are in this task force evaluating and pursuing tips, they say, referrals and whistleblower complaints on ESG related issues. So that focus again now is brought to light by the SEC, going back to what I said before, it being a trend and a focus of the SEC will therefore increase, I believe, whistleblower complaints in that area. Okay, just sticking with that, if there is an increase in ESG related whistleblower complaints, what are the sort of issues that companies will face? I mean, given that right now, um, you know, there is discussion within the SEC about what should be mandatory and what should be not. But really right now, what we know is that if you're going to disclose in your SEC filings ESG-related issues, um, those disclosures must be accurate. And I think whistleblowers will report if they believe that those disclosures are not accurate. And ESG covers a lot of issues that are obviously one important to investors, but in the context of what we're talking about that are important to employees. Um, they may or may not be something that the companies are disclosing in their SEC filings, because not all of it is mandatory right now, but to the extent they are, such as employees' health and safety, diversity, employee compensation and management, risk management, all of these things um, are historically areas where employees would have made complaints. But now, you know, you have this added component, as I said, to the extent a company includes ESG information in the SEC filing, it could result in enforcement actions. And, you know, the, the task force that I mentioned will assess compliance with these disclosure obligations under the federal securities laws. To the extent that ESG disclosures um, are inconsistent, this is, again, potential liability under state and federal securities laws and consumer protection laws could open up companies to books and records requests, different agency investigations. Um, I think you could even have breach of fiduciary duty claims uh, against control persons for failure to exercise adequate oversight. So all of these issues that might not have been a concern before really could be here. Um, whereas before they might've just been conduct issues that a company looked at and solved for. Now they could be this potential violation of federal securities laws. I think another area that's, that's difficult is, you know, there's been substantial debate over what types of context and details are in these ESG disclosures. And I think that that will make it tricky for employees who might not understand the full picture. And so you'll get an influx of complaints that may not be directly on point. You know, ESG is, is difficult. It's, there's not right now one set of metrics that covers all of ESG issues for all companies. Um, and I think, you know, the landscape is changing, the issues that were important at one point become more important later or vice versa. So I think that that, the fact that it's still in flux will create um, a lot of issues for whistleblowers who, again, may not understand it, the full picture might be bringing a lot of different complaints. Uh, and just a final question, um, Celia. What factors do you think companies need to consider regarding potential whistleblower complaints? I think that what, just like any whistleblower complaint, ESG complaints will be no different, but you have to take them, always take whistleblower complaints seriously. I mean, even if you get a complaint, uh, there might be one little 
tidbit in there that is true and, and is substantiated and the rest aren't. You have to look at the entire complaint. Make sure you look into it, investigate, document what is done so that you're, you're comfortable if this person goes to the SEC to report an issue, you're comfortable that you've done everything that you can. In addition, um, I always in my position felt that it is even if a whistleblower complaint is not substantiated, um, there's not evidence to support what the person said, I think it's always an opportunity. Every case you look at is an opportunity to look for compliance gaps, you know, areas of improvement. Is there anything to learn from what that employee has raised? Anything to improve in the company is always a good place to be. And again, if the, if the employee goes to the SEC and the SEC starts to investigate, you have, hey, we knew about this. We looked into it. We didn't see anything. And you know what? We even made our controls stronger. So it's always a good place to be. That's really interesting, um, Celia. And thanks ever so much for joining us today on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. In this section of the podcast, I'm joined by Anna Carrier, who is a senior government and regulatory affairs advisor in our Brussels office. And today we will be discussing the new European commodities regime. Hello, Anna. Hello. Hi. So today uh, we're going to talk about the new European commodities regime. Why are we talking about this now? And, you know, what's happened recently? So Arab, it's, a, it's a very good question. And um, the reason why we talk about changes to the European commodity derivatives regime now is because back in July 2020, the European Commission published and targeted amendments to the Market in Financial Instruments Directive, so MIPID 2, as a part of its wider capital markets recovery package. So by way of a very brief background, uh, you may recall that the industry has long criticized the broad scope of the European position limits regime as introduced by MIFID II. Um, it has often contrasted it with much more targeted regime that exists at the federal level in the United States. And not surprisingly, therefore, that when in November uh, 2019, the European Securities and Market Authority, ESMA, launched its uh, call for evidence on position limits and position management controls in commodity derivatives, great majority of respondents supported the ESMA proposal to reduce the scope of position limits to a more limited set of significant or critical contracts. The commodity derivatives regime was then highlighted by the Commission as one of the priority areas for the MIFID II review that was expected to take place in the course of 2020. But the COVID-19 outbreak accelerated those reforms by forcing the Commission to reprioritize its legislative works last year. So in its July 2020 proposal, the Commission proposed, among other ideas, to restrict application of the commodity derivatives position limit regime to non-agricultural critical or significant contracts and to change the ancillary activity exemption test for non-financial commodity derivative market participants. And the so-called MIFID quick fix amendments, as this legislation is known, um, was recently approved by the European co-legislators and was published in the EU official journal on 26th of February this year. So this is why it's very timely to talk about those changes now. I see, that makes uh, perfect sense. Um, what would you say are the key elements uh, of the reforms that are being proposed here? Yes, so there are 
five main elements of the reform that are um, important to flag. So first, uh, first part of the reform concerns position limits and agreeing with the Commission's proposal to significantly narrow down the application of the position limits regime. The co-legislators restricted it to critical or significant contracts, with the exception of agricultural pro products, and in particular, products used for human consumption. So commodity derivatives will be considered as critical or significant, where the sum of all net positions of end positions holders constituting the size of their open interest is at minimum 300,000 lots, on average over one year. So an exempted from the application of the position limit regime will be securitized derivatives, which relate to a commodity or an underlying as referred to in section C10 of Annex 1, Method 2. And um, ESMA is mandated to develop draft regulatory technical standards that will specify the agricultural commodity derivatives and create a list with critical or significant commodity derivatives subject to position limits. So the second part of the, um, of, of the reform and the big um, part of the changes um, introduced by the method quick fix concerns the hedging exemption. And here, the co-legislators agreed to extend the hedging exemption beyond the currently applicable one for positions held by or on behalf of a non-financial entity and which are objectively measurable as reducing risks directly relating to the commercial activity of the non-financial entity also to certain positions held by or on behalf of a financial entity. And the hedging exemption will be available only to a financial entity that is part of a predominantly commercial group and that is acting on behalf of a non-financial entity in such a group, which holds positions that are objectively measurable as reducing risks directly relating to the commercial activity of that non-financial entity. And in addition, Benefiting from the, um, from the hedging exemption will be positions held by financial and non-financial counterparties that are objectively measurable as reducing risks resulting from transactions entered into to fulfill obligations to provide liquidity on a trading venue. And further details on the operation of the amended hedging exemption, including the relevant procedures applicable to financial entities and those providing liquidity to trading venues, will have to be developed by ESMA and by the Commission by means of regulatory technical standards. So that's in terms of the hedging exemption. And another part of the reform concerns the notion of the same contract. And here the Commission proposed to delete the notion of same contract for commodity derivatives and to replace it with a cooperative approach between national competent authorities. So in the final text of the method quick fix legislation, the co-legislators agreed to replace the existing provisions by new rules aligned with the reduced scope of the position limits regime. So the revised approach will therefore be applicable to the competent authorities of the trading venues where agricultural commodity derivatives and critical or significant commodity derivatives that are based on the same underlying and that share the same characteristics are traded. Those um, competent authorities will be required to put in place cooperation arrangements for data exchange, and the single position limit is to be set by a competent authority of the trading venue where the largest volume of trading takes place following consultation with other competent authorities concerned. Any disputes arising in the course of setting such a single position limit regime will be settled by ESMA. And, and the final two points of the reform concern position management controls and unfair activity exemption. In respect of the position management controls, and the Commission noted that um, significant differences exist 
between trading venues in respect of position management controls and proposed, and the co-legislators agreed in the final text, to um, uh, require ESMA to further clarify the content of position management controls, taking into account the characteristics of the relevant trading venues. And finally, in respect of the unsolid activity exemption, the Commission proposed to simplify the current unsolid activity test by deleting all quantitative elements and reverting to a solely qualitative approach. However, in light of the opposition of, by certain member states, the final text provides for mandate for the Commission to adopt, by the end of July this year, a delegated act setting out the criteria that will determine when an activity is to be considered to be ancillary to the main business at a group level. And there are certain criteria that the Commission will have to take into account while doing so. And in addition, um, the Commission will also have to review, by the end of this year, the impact um, of the ancillary activity exemption in relation to emission allowances and derivatives thereof, and to propose, if appropriate, a legislative proposal to amend that part of the exemption. See, so some pretty pretty significant changes and quite quite wide ranging um, as well. Um, so, what are we likely to see next? I mean, you mentioned some some level two measures there, but what would you say is the general timeline um, for these reforms now? Sure. So, so the Mifid Quick Fix um, um, entered into force on the twenty seventh of February this year. So that was the day following its publication in the EU official journal. And now member states have until the 28th of November this year to transpose the provisions of Mifid Quick Fix to their national legal frameworks. And that is in time for the entry into application of this new regime, which is scheduled to take place on the 28th of February, 2022. But prior to the Mifid Quick Fix becoming applicable, ESMA has until 28th of November this year to develop draft regulatory technical standard and submit them to the Commission for final review and adoption. And with the intended application of the revised regime starting just three months later, it is um, perhaps fair to say that the timeline for the development and adoption of those required um, level two measures is rather ambitious, but uh, we are yet to see how this uh, plays out. But it, it is important as well to note that in the um, anticipation of the upcoming position limit regime change. Um, in March this year, ESMA issued a public statement on its supervisory approach to position limits. So noting that the um, new regime will become applicable in early 2022 and reminding market participants that it cannot disapply EU law, ESMA nonetheless called on national competent authorities, and I quote here, not to prioritize their supervisory actions towards entities holding positions in commodity derivatives, other than agricultural commodity derivatives with a net open interest below 200,000 lots. And also, and that's here's another quote, to not prioritize their supervisory actions towards positions that are objectively measurable as a result as resulting from transactions entered into to fulfill obligations to provide liquidity on a trading venue. So in respect of this hedging exemption that, that um, I discussed um, earlier, the, mm-hmm. those are important statements. So sort of kind of ESMA cannot issue non-action letters, but that's effectively the meaning of the, of those public statements. I see. So quite a lot, really, uh, in the off there. Um, thank you so much uh, for that, Anna. Um, if you are listening at home and you want more information uh, on this subject, please visit 
the Norton Rose Fallback website, uh, where we'll be shortly issuing a briefing note uh, on this subject, or do reach out uh, to your normal NRF contact. Anna, thank you very much. Thank you. In this section of the podcast, I'm joined by Matthew Gregory and Joe Bamford, both from our financial services team here in London. And we are delighted to welcome Jeffrey Mushins, Technical Policy Director at TISA, the Investing and Savings Alliance. Hello, Jeffrey. Hi, how are you? Very well, very well. Delighted to have you with us. Um, today, we will be discussing MIFID-related product costs and charges, and, and I will hand over to Matthew to begin uh, the session. Thanks, Arup, and uh, welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you again for, for joining us. So, as Arup mentioned, we're going to explore a little bit the costs and charges disclosures required pursuant to, to MIFID II and PRIPS, uh, explore a little bit of the uh, concerns which our clients um, are expressing and, and which uh, members have expressed, and then we're going to open up a little bit and talk about um, the recent product governance review of asset managers uh, carried out by the FCA. So, um, just to kick things off, Jeffrey, what sorts of charges should consumers and investors typically expect when investing in uh, products which are covered by MIFID? Uh, typically, the charges you can expect to see break into four basic categories. There will be initial costs, transaction costs, uh, operating costs, um, and uh, incidental costs, typically. And you can find them by you can see what they typically would look like by accessing the TISA Cost and Charges Implementation Guide, version 4.1 available from all good websites. It's certainly available from the TISA website, where in the various chapters we set out what people should be doing, from firms should be doing, and also set out specimen templates and the processes um, you should be taking to calculate your charges, both pre, uh, pre-sale, the so-called ex-ante, and also post-sale. But you would expect to see them broken down to four or five buckets, depending on whether you're an asset manager or whether you're a distributor. But in all cases, you'll expect to see uh, the initial costs, uh, the transaction costs. And transaction costs are the costs of incurred in the portfolio for investing and managing uh, securities. Then you'll have the operating cost, which is typically the asset manager cost and associated, and any incidental cost, which might be for your platform, your platform charges, etc., or it might be performance fees. Uh, but those are the kind of costs you, do, you should expect to see. When you buy, you should get from your, from your supplier, whether it's direct from a manufacturer asset manager or it's via an investment platform. And typically, you will purchase via an investment platform. 90% of all retail sales are via an investment platform. So you'd expect to uh, get some statement from your platform. Most transactions tend to be online and you would expect to, before you purchase, before you, you agree to proceed, you should get a, a, an estimate, a forecast of your costs over one year, typically a five year period. And only after that would you be expected to proceed. And you'd normally see it um, I saw some a couple of days ago when I was doing some work myself and you'd expect to see it broken down into those categories, initial transaction operating and uh, other maybe platform cost. And that will show you what the impact is on your investment over initial cost and over a five year period. So that's what you, you should expect to see. Thanks, Jeffrey. That's that's a really helpful introduction. And um, at one level, the, the, the regulatory requirements around costs and charges are actually quite 
right, quite narrow, quite technical. Um, but if you actually think a little bit more about the policy backdrop to costs and charges and some of the FCA's work recently on enabling consumers to make effective investment decisions, which is a priority for the regulator in the next one to three years, I set out in the business plan. Costs and charges are actually a really key component of the overall product journey from a consumer's perspective, and they're really, really important. Uh, and, and that's what you, you should expect. This is the customer's money. They should be able to see Absolutely. what it's actually costing them to invest. Yeah, quite right. And thinking about those, those requirements, I mean, I think it'd be quite interesting to, to get your reflections. And also, um, uh, Joe is going to add a little bit in terms of our experience of the way in which the industry has progressed since the implementation of, of MIFID II and where costs and charges disclosure requirements and firms' obligations and their ability to comply really sit against the, the backdrop of the wider product governance requirements. What, what, what are your reflections on, on that from, from your work with, with industry? Well, I th think that uh, it's settled down after it is very hard to do because if you are running a portfolio, you have got to access for each fund in a portfolio, uh, the costs broken down, you've got to time apportion it depending on the holding period for your client. You've then got to amalgamate it with the other funds in a portfolio to give a snapshot uh, for the portfolio as a whole. These aren't trivial things to do. So they're hard to do. And I think the industry's worked really hard to get there. The plus I think for customers has been that enables them to see just how much they're paying. And sometimes it's been a sharp intake of breath. I think it's made, uh, given advisors weapons to see if they get better deals for their clients. And I've, if anything, I've seen, we've seen costs and charges trending down. And I think it's made asset managers look at the relationships they've had with third parties like custodians, where they do FX, where they do stock lending, to see if they can get a better deal for their customers. Because for the first time, those kind of costs have to be disclosed as part of the overall charge figure, whereas before they didn't. The operating costs, the manager's annual charge, if you'd like, uh, was the only thing that would have to be disclosed and not the other kind of charges that would be incurred rightfully for managing a portfolio. Now those mm. card charges have to be disclosed and they can be a little bit ugly. So I think mm. there's been some pressure and I think we certainly know from right at the start, some, some firms are saying, actually, the, the, the level, of, level of revenue that we're getting or that we've seen uh, from associated costs and charges means that the, the, the figures are really ugly. So I think there's been a plus for customers and for competitive firms in driving costs down and driving unacceptable practices out. Thanks, Jeffrey. Joe, what are your thoughts on what we've seen with clients over the, the past couple of years? Thanks, Matt. I mean, I, I definitely agree. Um, what we have seen is, uh, you know, the industry really stepping up in terms of the level of guidance and also from, from the regulators to ensure there's a bit more clarity and certainty on how you approach the cost and charge disclosures. I mean, broadly, the two areas we tend to get a, a queries from clients and approached on relates to sort of the, the actual distribution of the cost and charge disclosure. So around sort of particularly where you have people going on EXO platforms, um, but where they're also uh, receiving advisory services, who is ultimately responsible for giving that disclosure. Um, and also as we move into more technological solutions as well, making sure people meet the sort of standard durable medium requirements around the cost and charge disclosures. And one of the other interesting queries actually has come a bit more since the um, onset of the pandemic and the lack of face-to-face -face interactions is also the provision of these disclosures um, via telephone, particularly for those people who don't normally use online as a way of transacting. 
Um, and then on to the sort of actual disclosure itself. I mean, there's the classic debate, and I think Jeffrey sort of touched on it to some extent on, on sort of, you know, what are the transaction costs? What is the cost? What is the price of the instrument? Um, I've also seen a lot of a lot of queries as well onto the actual sort of template EMT disclosure documentation um, that sort of sits behind it when providing that in your distribution chain. And, and, and definitely in terms of the consistency between that information and, and other broader disclosures that firms are, are making. Um, I think a lot of these issues are actually quite consistent really with the ones that the FCA highlighted in their in their market review in 2019. Um, and, and but as Jeffrey's kind of made the point really, it's with a lot of these, I think it, it is hard to do, but with more industry guidance, I think there's much more of a uniform approach across the market to lots of these issues now. Thanks, Joe. That's uh, that's really interesting. Just picking up that point that you mentioned about wider requirements, in the recent uh, product governance review, which the FCA carried out to certain asset managers, in connection with costs and charges, the FCA made the point that actually firms need to bear principle seven in mind, and make sure that communications with clients are fair, clear and not misleading. Jeffrey, just a word, because I'm conscious we are almost up to time on that review carried out by the FCA and uh, any reflections on the direction of travel on product governance more generally over the remainder of the year? We know that the FCA is really interested in product governance. It thinks that's the area of highest risk of a customer detriment and in making sure that firms or customers are not buying products for which, for which they're outside the target market. They're concerned about target market and they're less concerned about charges. I have to say we, I don't recollect in any of the conversations I'm saying that firms are getting this wrong or the charges are too high. We haven't heard those. The focus is, is on product governance and that the focus is on, uh, are firms doing proper scenario planning? Are they properly evaluating the, cust uh, the potential risk for customers? Um, are they doing regular testing? You know, what are their processes in place to make sure that the product is, is suitable or is, a, sorry, is appropriate, suitable is a very dangerous word in these days, is appropriate for the identified target market and there are processes in place to keep that under review. Uh, and that's, that's again, if you've got a, an asset manager with say 50 or 100 funds under management, that's actually quite a burden. You're going to have at least annual reviews, maybe six monthly, you're carrying out value assessments. There's quite a process to go through. And we know that we're currently involved with other industry bodies in discussions with the FCA. And I think quite a constructive way in how we can make sure that the firms meet the reasonable product governance expectations of the FCA, I'd say the discussions have been very constructive and they're ongoing at the moment. Thanks, Jeffrey. That's that's all great to hear. And I think that was a really interesting uh, brief discussion on costs and charges and clearly an area for, for firms to get right. Uh, it's been an area of uh, tremendous work over the past few years and uh, product governance as ever remains a really hot topic uh, for, for all firms in the uh, consumer investment market. We're almost up to time, so I'm going to hand back to Arup and say thanks again to Jeffrey for joining us and to Joe Bamford from our financial services team. And thank you to you all for listening. Thank you, Matthew. Well. And just uh, before we wrap up, just a quick reminder, um, if you want more information on this, do visit regulationtomorrow.com where we've got a, a very lengthy briefing note uh, on the uh, recent product governance review. And also uh, do visit tysa.uk.com where you will find uh, the, the documents that Jeffrey referred yeah. to as well. Yeah. Thanks very much, everyone. And thank you for your time. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks all.
So we've just got time left to say thank you to all of our speakers, particularly Jeffrey Mushens from TISA. Uh, thank you to you too for tuning in and we hope to catch you again soon. Thank you.